This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's 6am on Tuesday, the 24th of May. I'm Shazana Mokhtar in studio today with Tanchen Lee and Philip C. A good very good morning. morning. How did everyone sleep last night? I slept like a baby. Oh, I envy you. <laughs> I'm so happy that it's seven hours sleep. Minimum seven. Wow. If not, I won't function properly throughout the day. How about you guys? How many hours, minimum hours do you need to function well? I would think five for me. Wow, really? Five? I think, I think. I don't know. But, Incredibly. Uh, but last night I only had three. Oh dear, that yeah. is terrible. I know because You're... there's there's this car uh, parked near my my condo that um, the car alarm keep beeping off. I mean keep uh, sounding off. Yeah, yeah. So then it, I think the owner tried to shut it off and then it goes on again. So I was like really disrupted by it. So I got woken up by it and couldn't go back to sleep. Darn the perils of urban living. <laughs> yes. And when you don't, especially when you can't do anything about it, it's not your car. You can't. You can't. Do anything. What you can't do is if you have two puppies who bark and keep on barking <laughs> <laughs> two yeah. in the morning, three in the morning. But you slept like a baby though. Uh, they were very good last night, but oh my goodness, previous nights were hell. Well, tell us if anything goes bump in the night for you out there. <laughs> you can WhatsApp us any time of day at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We'd love to hear what you're up to and how your sleep has been. But uh, we're also going to give you a preview of what we have lined up this morning. We have a lot of interesting content conversations on our docket starting at 7.15 when we dissect Malaysia's performance at the SEA Games in Hanoi. I mean, we achieved the target that we set out. We wanted 36 gold medals. We got 39 gold medals. But still, the Minister of Youth and Sports has been wringing his hands over our disappointing performance. So what gives? We'll have Harish Dio, the editor at 2213.com, uh, to weigh in on how we actually did. I wonder if this is a question of setting a very low bar, <laughs> essentially, because as we talked about, you know, comparing to where it was two years ago, uh, this was a reduction in the number of gold medals that Malaysia achieved. Now, at 7.30, we discussed to what extent the lockdowns in China are weighing down on consumer sentiment and the spending patterns observed with Kathy Chow of Fitch Ratings. And just overnight, we heard that the Chinese government is pumping a bit more stimulus into the economy. That's right. So we're going to be discussing that a little later in the day. Don't forget that in Q1, if I'm not mistaken, China's consumer demand wasn't that bad, really. It held up okay. The, G- the their uh, economy actually grew. But whether that can continue in subsequent quarters, I think that's a big uh, question for everyone. Yes, and then at 7.45, the government is mulling reforms to petrol subsidies to make them more targeted. But can this actually be implemented? So we will speak to economist Jeffrey Williams on this issue and really to find out how do we do these targeted subsidies? It's a perennial proposal that comes up every so often, every year, all the time. We know subsidies aren't sustainable in the long run, but hey, we've had them for a very long time already. What is it going to take to make those reforms? So we're going to discuss all this and more today on The Morning Run. Stay tuned to us, BFM 89.9. Instant Karma by John Lennon. Before that, you also heard Dusty Springfield with Son of a Preacher Man. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C. and Tan Chen Lee. 6.09 a.m. on Tuesday, the 24th of May. So you know that saying, they've let money or power go to their head, right? 
mean, we've, we've all heard that in some form or other. So there's actually some literal truth to that. So we're looking at an article from Fast Company this morning that looks at research into the brain by the University of Pennsylvania that charts the link between socioeconomic status and gray matter volume. That's right. So they say that factors such as your education, your job, your income, and even your neighborhood could affect your brain's architecture. Now, what they're seeing is that these social economic statuses could potentially affect 1.6% variation to your total brain volume, which really brings up the question that actually in life, it is both nature and nurture. So when I first read this article, a part of me went like, well, duh. I mean, isn't this quite uh, an evident uh, kind, mm. uh, kind of fact that, of course, your socioeconomic uh, status can affect how your brain uh, develops. But I think what's um, new about this is it actually looks at how it, it looks at how it develops, and it's really looking at that gray matter, the volume. Mm. It shows that when you have better socioeconomic status, the gray matter in your brain also um, grows bigger. And and that's kind of one of the first uh, links that they've managed to uh, chart out between that. It's a clear physical correlation. You know, we always intuitively gut feel agree with it, but you now understand on a more physical realm how actually your socioeconomic status affects the structure, physical structure of the brain. And for many of us, as you said, right, it's duh, of course. If you are in a challenging socioeconomic environment, let's say in a polluted environment, or if you are not having sufficient nourishment and such, naturally, of course, it should affect your entire physical composition, which should include the brain. But I think even talks more than that. It also talks about, you know, your built environment, the stresses of what you go through every day that will also shape your brain. I was reading the article and then I came across what uh, I think the author also talked about body mass index or BMI, Mm -hmm. which is another meter of health um, that they say influenced by both nature and nurture. But I I have a thing about BMI actually because it's too simplistic uh, to calculate your health or to get a gauge of your health because it's just basically your weight over your height. So I kind of wonder also about the, the rest of the article. Is it really too simplistic or too general to come into the conclusion? That yes, of course, socioeconomic uh, factors has a has a factor to the structure or architecture of your brain. But does it is that really that's it? Is that more to it? You know, I'm sure there's more to it. It just can't be pure BMI. That's but right. I think there's a minimum threshold of you know nutrition you need. So BMI is meant to kind of give that, as you say, rather vague gauge of the minimum nutritional levels you need. But in this article also, it talks about so many other dimensions which we usually don't think correlate to how it affects your brain. So, for example, the environment you're in, your socioeconomic status, your poverty, your income levels, I think those are also core to shape your brain. So, uh, what, what this... What these findings do for me is it really underscores the whole uh, income inequality gap and yeah. how people, how segments of different socioeconomic status, how differently they're affected, and and hence I would I would really hope that policymakers take these findings and use it in determining um, how to, for example, build the best neighborhood that can benefit uh, people of all socioeconomic mm. status and not just for those of the higher income, for example. Well, just building on that, you know, policymakers, you talk about neighborhoods. How do we integrate low income and high income communities together seamlessly, as opposed to creating? Gap- 
get tools for low incomes because that I think is also key to policy making. Because the idea is high income um, uh, families or high income communities they have better access to facilities, better access to healthcare, better access to education. So how can we spread that access and ensure that even those of a lower social economic status also get access Absolutely. to quality healthcare and education so they too can reap the benefits and grow that grey matter volume? Well, tell us what you think. You know, how strong do you think the link between social economic status and the brain is? Um, you know, what other income inequality gaps should be indicators for how policymakers should set the uh, rules moving forward? You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're heading into some messages. When we come back, we're going to discuss mandatory fun in the office. Is it really fun if you're forced to have it? Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Under the pressure by the war on drugs, you're listening to The Morning Run at 6.20 in the morning on Tuesday, the 24th of May. I'm Shazana with Philip and Chun Li. Now, we're looking at this article from BBC Work Life. And the question that it's asking is, can something be fun if you're forced into it. We're talking about the activities that employers plan for the office that's supposed to be fun, but in practice can sometimes become quite excruciating. I definitely don't think it's fun if you're under pressure, (laughs) you know, (laughs) honestly, because many of us, I, I understand the logic because after the pandemic, everyone's been away and people want to start getting to know each other back again. They want to start reconnecting and understanding each other and perhaps hard in a work environment. So, you know, employers, bosses think, oh, the best way is let's inject some fun into the whole process. Because the idea is fun means happy. Happy employees mean better work productivity, right? Absolutely. That's that's, our motive. (laughs) That's the theory of it, at least. Yeah. But not when we're forced into it. Like, I mean, a lot of times uh, companies like to organize things like team building or mm. uh, maybe birthday celebrations. And um, some people will be tasked with buying the cake, for example, or, you know, or planning the activities. So sometimes it may not be fun if you have to do the planning. Exactly. So, you know, office trips, I, ro- I, office trips, I really roll my eyes. So if I had a choice, I would make sure I would get an introvert to manage the office trip. Oh, I'm looking at you, Phil, and my eyes are narrowed, and I'm like really, you know, grimacing under this mask. Like, oh, don't you dare do that to the introvert. Oh, I want then, an introvert to do this. Because, why, why do you want well, it? Well, because they would organize it in a way that creates that balance of, okay, let us do something together, but the rest of the trip, you can do your own stuff. Because if I you, get what you mean. If you force, why are you shaking your head so vigorously, Shah? It's so disappointing. In, as an introvert, I would really resent being assigned that task to Malik, if you're you're hearing this, Shah's just volunteered herself to do the BFM office trip. Uh You mean Philip volunteered me. But but coming back to to the issue of planned fun, you know, Mm. is there a way to do it right? I mean, Hmm. I think I was just thinking that if it's impromptu, I would prefer yeah. to to have it more than something that you plan for. And then a lot of times you'll be resenting kind of, oh, I have to go for this thing come this weekend. And I already have all these other plans, uh, uh, private arrangement, and then now I have to cancel all of them. But then most of the time when you attend already, you'll be like, oh, actually, I had fun. Yeah, <laughs> so, fun, huh? yeah, yeah, but of course, before you go for the event, you'll be resenting it sometimes. You know, I, I think for me, that's just for me. But then 
then, um, so sometimes I would prefer for it to be very impromptu. For example, maybe like uh, my boss would say, hey, why don't we go for lunch today? Like yes. now, yes. I would be like, sure, why not? Free lunch. Yes, <laughs> I mean, if, if you have time and you have no other pressing matters, yes. why not? The issue is that if you have other competing issues and challenges, then you think, well, why would I want to join? And it's forced. Yes. So I think what you're talking about is this spontaneity, which is fine. I think in Asia, we do it quite well, where, you know, it's more about a quick makan or if we end up just doing a sports activity together, go hiking and such. I think that's quite all right. But in the West, I think they try to put a lot of effort in having birthday parties in the office or they have drink sessions or they try and get everybody to do an activity together or play a game, a board game. I think that's just a bit contrived in my view. I guess it really depends on what the employees want, yeah? So as the article points out, the real, um, I guess, the, the secret ingredient to these activities working is if the employees themselves want to attend this. So yeah. I feel if it's something, if it's an activity that perhaps uh, the, the vast majority of employees are pretty keen to participate in, then why not you organize a company-wide event of that nature? But if it's something that's really engineered from the top where the boss thinks, hey, this might be a good idea, but without getting input from employees, employees, then I think that could be a recipe for excruciating mandatory funds. So a very good example was when I was working in a previous company and we had global operations in New Zealand, every Friday evening, 3 to 5 p.m. was basically the bar was open, right? And in, in this story also, they talked about this wine and wine. So you drink wine while you whine about your boss. So it was essentially from 3 to 5, you could go there and just drink a nice glass of wine and even just talk about your, your previous work in the past week hit and it didn't force everybody but because it didn't feel forced everybody just went and it was natural it was fun it was relaxing it was end of the week so you're kind of using it to wind down as well so it's a very nice way so you're right how you design it well to make sure it doesn't feel forced but have some structure is also very helpful i think connections uh, it's best to remember that connections are they're organic, right? You can't force these can't connections force. to happen. And the idea of making these fun activities or holding them is so that your employees can get to know each other and mm. there will be different ways to do that. So I think employers just need to provide those opportunities, but maybe not make it compulsory because I think that's the way to, to make uh, these connections grow more organically. I think that is, uh, I mean, of, of all the resentment, I actually think that all these activities are important for the culture of the company because... Um, Maybe I don't need to know, maybe I have no work arrangement with someone from accounting, for example, mm. but it's sometimes good to know each other because there will come a time where we want to, we, 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 I mean, not because I have an objective here, but it's good to make friends with yeah. each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. And just one more quick one. I think to build connections, as you were saying, you need the physical space. So like in BFM, the pantry was a great physical space for me to build connections with outside my team. And it is designed this way, actually. It is designed that way. Well, tell us what you think. You know, what do you make of mandatory fun in the office? What are some fun activities that uh, your workplace has done, which actually managed to achieve the target of, you know, em happy employees? You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're now heading into the 6.30 a.m. news bulletin. It's 6.26 in the morning. We'll be back after the bulletin with a look at global headlines. Here are the kinks taking you to the bulletin with this time tomorrow. BFM 89.9. That was Duran Duran with Come Undone. You're listening to The Morning Run. It's 6.42 a.m. on Tuesday, the 24th of May. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Philip C. and Tan Chen Lee. It's that time of morning where we take a look at what's making global headlines around the world. Tell me what's caught your eye this morning. 
Well, I'm, get, <laughs> I'm looking at U.S. actually. Uh, Joe Biden unveils a 13-nation economic pact to uh, assert Asia leadership over here, which is basically the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework or the IPEF in short. Uh, some say that it's actually aiming to counter China, but of course, we, there's a lot of saying about it. And But a lot of details is still uh, not unveiled yet. Um, uh, we are still waiting for that. Uh, a lot of actually, this, the 13 nations that's involved constitute about 40% of global GDP. Uh, which is quite a large scheme, actually, if you were to ask me. But the question is how effective it is, because the framework doesn't include any tariff relief, which is usually what one expects in such pacts. Uh, really, it's a, it's kind of a way to sort out key issues from climate change to supply chain and digital trade. So it does talk about the latest developments and issues coming through in the, with respect to the economies. But there's no discussion about the, the tariffs or even the tax reliefs that are being discussed between these nations. I mean, from what I gather, this Indo-Pacific economic framework, it hasn't even properly been discussed yet. They're just announcing that we have a plan to do this. Uh, Negotiations are still going to take 12 to 18 months with all these countries. So it's very, very early stages in what this framework is meant to be. And there is a lot of uncertainty or lack of clarity Mm. in what the actual aims are uh, eventually going to come out of it. So I'm confused because, you know, there are so many of these packs coming through. You've got CPP coming through. You have RCEP with China. So all, are they all just tripping over each other with all these packs? That's what it sounds like to me. Because mm. I'm wondering what what new value can the IPEF bring when we already have the CPTPP and the RCEP as two pretty comprehensive, very different treaties, but mm. they already cover the region. And now with IPEF, um, it's really a way for the US to make its stamp. But I'm just wondering how, why is this really the right way or the best way to go about it? It remains to be seen. I mean, if we recall the CPTPP or the used to call TPP, uh, actually the Trump administration was yes. the one who, <laughs> who walked away from it. And then, of course, China... Uh, and um, I think China, the RCEP. They, RCEP, they came up with RCEP. And then now we have this IPEF um, and China is not part of that. So then what is what exactly is the message that's being sent here? I wonder? mean, I, I think it's very clear that the IPEF is meant to counter China's influence in yeah. the region. It's very clear. It's acknowledged, in fact. But whether it can do this is quite the other question. In fact, the IPEF, it's not barred to China. China apparently can join at some point in the future. Um, but uh, according to U.S officials. At this point, they feel that China may not be um, ready to join just because of the high standards it may impose. I don't know. Um, But again, this is all part of that geopolitical dynamic happening in the region between the US and China. And related to Joe Biden's trip, there are headlines coming out on what he said recently about Taiwan um, and whether he's actually changing the US's policy of strategic ambiguity when it comes to Taiwan. So when a reporter asked Biden during a joint news conference whether the US would defend Taiwan if it were attacked, the president answered, yes. That's the commitment we made. Now, he said also, though, in the same breath, we agree with a one-China policy, we've signed on to it, and all the intended agreements made from there. But the idea that it can be taken by force, just taken by force, is just not appropriate. So mixed messages coming from Joe Biden there. Does he believe in the one China policy or does he not? Will he uh, militarily defend Taiwan or will or will he not? So all this while the U.S. has maintained a rather ambiguous stance on whether they would do that. 
Yeah, and he's, this is not his first time, yeah? He's, he's also not. said this in October last year. And this is the issue I have with this whole posture of strategic ambiguity. It really doesn't help when you have politicians who are not on message, who do not know really what this actually means and can say things off the cuff. So you have another gaff-prone leader going around saying things which potentially could create a lot of instability geopolitically. Ambiguity is kind of not the greatest uh, thing to have in diplomacy, I guess. Uh, you know, it thrives on clarity, I suppose. Um, and I don't know what's going to come out of this. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Today, Biden will attend a quad meeting. That's the Indo-Pacific Security Grouping uh, with Japan, India and Australia. Uh, we'll see what comes out of that uh, later on today. It is 6.46 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. We'll come back with a look at what's making the front pages of our local newspapers and portals. BFM 89.9. Arcade fire with keep the car running. Maybe don't do that because it's not great for the environment. But you're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana, Phil and Chen Li, 6.50 a.m. on Tuesday, the 24th of May. Let's take a look at what's making headlines on this fair morning. Plenty of headlines on the same subject here uh, across a few newspapers, which is from June 1st onwards, the export of chicken from Malaysia will be banned, while the import of chicken will be open uh, to ensure that there is sufficient supply in the market. Um, pretty interesting news over here that is also on Bloomberg, actually. Um, there's also the, the, the cabinet actually has also approved the AP for wheat and um, and directed ministries to list down items where the need for APs could be abolished. Yeah, just to give some context, there is a worsening supply of chicken in this country. A bit of background behind this, actually what the government had previously done was set a ceiling price for standard chicken eight ringgit ninety cent. In return, they did offer a subsidy totaling about seven hundred and thirty million ringgit as part of their Kalawarga Malaysia price control scheme. But I think not everybody has taken up that subsidy, and the result is this whole mismatch over demand and supply. As you were saying, Chen Li, the cabinet met last yesterday, and they mentioned these five measures. Right, as you said, the first one was halting the export of about these three point six million chickens. Secondly, they plan to create a database of chicken supply. The third is, as you said earlier on abolishing APs for chicken, simplifying the subsidy process for the producers is number four, and then increasing the certification for overseas processing farms outside the country. So Malaysia Kini on its website has a very useful guide on the chicken shortage, just breaking down all the factors that are going into it. What's the state mm. of play? I think, as you mentioned, um, Phil, just the high uh, prices of wheat um, that has uh, bled into cost for chickens because... Feed. Feed for the chickens relies on wheat. Uh, there are proposals now to maybe look at growing corn in Malaysia in order to be self-sufficient in terms of a supply of feed for chickens and other livestock. Um, so a lot of permutations of this conversation happening um, resulting from this shortage of chicken. Yes, yeah, so they're suggesting to, uh, to, to do corn farming and also the use of palm kernel cake as an, as an alternative feed. And I think there's also uh, poultry farmers are also asking the government to subsidize chicken feed. Uh, this is really showing how dire the situation is with the producers of chicken. Yeah, I wonder whether we are seeing uh, impact yet on, on in the restaurants, in the shelves of supermarkets. I think that's a key question. We've seen some mixed responses so far, right, among the retailers. They're still saying, look, there is still supply uh, in place, so shouldn't panic so much. But you're also hearing over the weekend that supplies had also stopped. So mixed pictures about whether or not there is a disruption in the immediate 
immediate term. Or yeah, who is facing the disruption? Where these uh, supply blocks are? Um, something that we will definitely be keeping an eye on because chicken is uh, such an important protein in Malaysia. I think it's something that many people rely on for nutrition. Um, so important uh, whether this supply can be restored in a timely manner. Yeah. Well, just one more story I think tr- struck me is the age recently. Dato Sri Ahmad Zahid Hamidi's court uh, told the court during his graft trial on Monday that he's paying the price for negligence of his executive secretary, Major Maslina Maslan, because claiming that she was the one who took it upon herself to use funds from his charitable fund foundation, Yayasan Akal Budi, to pay off his personal credit cards, among others. So blaming the secretary this time. So he is throwing his secretary under the bus, essentially. That's right. Because when lawyer Dato Ahmad Zaidi Zanal showed him his credit card statements, how did he plan to address his outstanding current balance of 136,604 ringgit? He was basically saying, look, I don't know because she was negligent and I'm now paying for it. Okay, interesting. And on the on the different news over here, which is on oil palm sector, um, they are actually still complaining about the lack of foreign workers. I think there was a promise of arrival of thirty two thousand foreign workers, but they are still not forthcoming. And this needs to be accelerated uh, because we will be risking losing 28 billion ringgit in 2022 without these existence of foreign workers to help with the, the sector. I think we uh, were looking at some earnings reports yesterday and there are companies that um, are not able to uh, reap the fruit because yeah. of lack of workers. Um, so this is a pretty widespread problem across the industry. How soon this can be resolved is a big question. That's right. What you saw yesterday was that you know the results were good because prices were high but production was low. Our production for fresh food branches across the board dropped as a result of these uh, severe labour shortages. So, especially we saw overnight where Indonesia now is resuming palm oil exports, you saw pressure among the counters uh, yesterday as we saw competition come into the market again. So very quickly here, um, a headline that I saw that made me feel made me be quite sad actually, and that is a Perak Rare Earth Mining Pilot Project gets the green light. Uh, the Perak State Government is uh, expect uh, expects to open a mining of a rare earth mineral called lintonite in Hulu Perak. This area is also known to be a reserve for tigers. Um, so they've received the environmental impact assessment report. Uh, it was approved uh, and. I don't know. Uh, coming after uh, World Biodiversity Day, the fact that um, we're looking to uh, encroach into a, an ecologically sensitive area to uh, mine minerals, to me, it doesn't sit well with me. And it makes me question what the priorities of the government are when it comes to uh, conservation. And I wonder whether they're parallels with Linus. When you say rare rare earths, you, you can't, you you can't forget that. You can't forget Linus. Absolutely. 6.56 in the morning. We're heading into the 7 a.m. news bulletin. And after that, we'll be back with a look at uh, global markets and how they closed overnight. Taking you to the news is Jamira Kwai with All Right, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9. The business station.